0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In the late 1970s, a man from China visited Europe. While he was there, he stumbled on two books that didn't just change his life, they changed his country. And you could argue, they changed the world. The books made an argument that was gaining currency in the US and in Europe in the 1970s, that the world's population, which was over 4 billion, was a ticking time bomb. And the solution was to curtail consumption and reproduction, to get closer to the land, to stop straining the earth. There were experts making a different sort of argument, that we could use technology to feed billions more people, that we could come up with less wasteful ways to manufacture the products we love, that inventiveness would provide a solution. But the Chinese official, Song Jen, embraced the ticking time bomb argument. And when he went back to China, he advocated something that has shaped the world's most populous nation, a one-child policy. That argument over whether we should save the world by restricting consumption or just by inventing our way out of messes, that had been raging for years when Song Jen stumbled across it. And it's still going on. Charles Mann writes about the American scientists who faced off against each other in the battle between restriction and inventiveness. And he looks at what we've learned about who was right all these decades later. Charles Mann is the author of the new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Charles, welcome.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So now that there are more than 7 billion, we were talking, you know, I was talking about all this sort of worrying when when the population was at four plus billion. Now that we're at seven plus billion, it's incredible to kind of look back and realize there was such concern about population growth. Why was there that kind of concern in the 60s and in the 70s about this ticking time bomb of population?
1: Well, there are two reasons. First, uh, the population was increasing incredibly quickly at that time. Okay. Uh, Much faster than now. Okay. Um, It had uh, almost tripled in the lifetime of Song Jen and the people who were talking then, whereas somebody um, from now— it's about 7 billion. If he were doing this now and in 2050, about 10 billion, that's an increase of about 25%. OK. So if you like, the slope of the curve was much, much steeper. OK. And nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And the second reason was that it's indisputable that this incredible outpouring of people was radically straining the capacities of many, many countries um, in poor areas, especially such as India and China. Mm -hmm. And so there was a real problem. The question was whether the population was the cause of the problem or merely something that was related to
0: it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the fact that we have been able to scale up from 4 billion people in the 70s to 7 billion people now, does that make you, does that make um, environmentalists feel any better about like, our ability to handle billions more people, to feed billions more people?
1: Well, that's the question, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. And we don't have the rates of famine, by the way, that we did, for example, in I think the 1980s. So you might think like maybe now even more people are hungry than they ever were. But that is not true. We are not in a time of record famine.
1: No, it's in fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. In 1970 or thereabouts, you know, when I was in high school, something like a third of the world was malnourished. Okay. And now it's something like 10%, even though the population has more than doubled in those intervening decades. And so today, you have less chance of being born into a family that's experiencing undernourishment than at any time in recorded history. So in that way, it's quite good. On the other hand, 8%, 10% 8%, 10% of a big number, which is 7 billion is a big number, It's still a big number. And there's roughly 800 million people, hungry people in the world. That's a lot.
0: Right, right. What, what does it say to you, though, about human ingenuity that we've been able to feed billions more mouths in the last 40 years?
1: Well, human ingenuity is an incredibly powerful force. Um, the central argument in my book is whether it's powerful enough. Uh-huh. And whether we can, if you like, outwit nature, whether we can keep going in the way we've been going. And the argument in my book is between people who say human ingenuity is an unstoppable force and between people who say, look, there are these natural cycles, these natural processes, and we transgress them at our peril. And what we've been able to do is temporarily buy ourselves some room.
0: So you uh, sort of got the idea for this book um, in some ways after you realized that when your daughter grew up, there would be 10 billion people on the planet. Um, Right.
1: When she was my age, there'd be about 10 billion people.
0: Right. Does that number still still scare you in the way that it did this idea of like, wow, 10 billion?
1: It does seem like a lot of people, doesn't it?
0: It does. But I can't put my arms around 7 billion. So I don't, (laughs) you know, it's hard to like, these are just numbers, right? Right
1: they're but they're very large numbers they and are. It really it struck me as literally on the day she was born you know they threw me out of the hospital which is you know what they do to dads <laughs> so that you know, the people who actually did something the moms and the children can get to uh, get to some sleep and i was standing there in the parking lot and it suddenly occurred to me you know when she's my age, it's going to be 10 billion people. How's that going to work? Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that the question is so pressing now is that accompanying this incredible rise in numbers has also been an incredible rise in global affluence. I mean, the difference between right. Mexico when I first saw it in 1981 and now is incredible. Mm-hmm. The difference between China when I first saw it in 19, or 1990 and now is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Same thing for India which I, when I first saw it in the 80s. Any, if you've been traveling anywhere in the developing world, the change that you've seen in people's lives is just absolutely extraordinary. Right. So not only are there going to be almost 10 billion people, but they're going to a huge number of them are going to be affluent middle class people like myself, and they're going to want all the things I want. Mm-hmm. They're going to want air conditioning. They want a car. They're going to want to have nice clothes. They want occasional treats. At one point, I was going to call the book Toblerone for 10 billion, <laughs> but my editor vetoed that for some reason. <laughs>
0: Um, So let's talk about these two competing visions that you write about in the book. Um, I I mentioned them in the beginning. There's this idea of, look, we're straining the earth. Let's pull back on buying stuff, on having kids. And then uh, there's the other side of like, no, science is going to save us. We can have the things we want. Uh, We just have to figure out kind of ingenious ways of making it happen. I think for many of us, that's not a binary choice. So we do both of those things. So for me, there'll be times when I think, I really shouldn't buy that shirt. I I don't need one more shirt. There will be other times, though, when I think I need disposable forks for a party. I I, I actually recently saw uh, forks on Amazon and thought, great, these are compostable. I will buy these forks. You write about these two men who personified these two different approaches. Do you want to talk about these guys?
1: Sure. Um, After my daughter was born, and I had this realization. Um, I mean, I'd known this before, but it somehow it hit me really hard. Maybe I had more skin in the game. I'm a science writer, and I would talk to scientists, and if we hit it off, I would have a cup of coffee with them afterwards, and I would say, you know, my daughter's just been born, and I would tell them what I had thought, and I'd say, what are we going to do? How are we going to provide enough food for everybody? How are we going to provide enough water, energy? You know, what are we going to do about climate change? And I realized after a while that there were these two broad categories of answers. You know, there are two broad approaches. And these two names kept coming up when people would discuss them, and one was Norman Borlaug, and he's the principal figure behind the Green Revolution, which is the combination of high-yielding crops, um, especially bread, high-intensity fertilizer and irrigation that doubled or even tripled um, grain yields across the world and forestalled a tremendous amount of famine. And then the, he's become the idea, symbol, if you like, or the emblem of the idea that science and technology, properly applied, can let you produce your way out of mm-hmm. these things, out of these dilemmas. You can, we can put on our thinking caps, make more, and everybody can win. And the other guy is a guy named William Vogt. And he, more than anybody else, is the progenitor of the environmental movement, this enormously powerful realization that the world has limits this belief that the world has these natural processes. You can't go beyond them. Otherwise, bad things happen. And he wrote the first modern We're All Going to Hell book, if you know what I mean. And all the books you might have read, The Population Bomb, right. um, Al Gore's book, uh, Earth in mm-hmm. the Balance, Limits to Growth, all these classics, Silent Spring, all stem from his book. Hmm. And he said, look, again, the world has a caring capacity, as he called it. There's only so much we can do. And if we don't stay within that limit, Everybody's going to lose, and I realize these two approaches are kind of the opposite with each other. And Borlaug and Vote got into a fight in the 1940s when they met. Um, Vote actually tried to get Borlaug shut down, kind of half-heartedly, and they never spoke ever again. And that's pretty much where the dialogue has been. And this fight has been going on underneath. For decades.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, the Borlaug approach first. This sort of maybe science can help us increase the carrying capacity, right, right. that it's not finite, that we can Don't worry, we can, we can come up with a solution, even if we increase the load or people want more stuff or whatever. What made Borlaug believe that, like, there was sort of Inventiveness was the answer and we didn't need to uh, restrict people?
1: I think um, it was his own life. I mean, he uh, more or less accidentally backed into a a career in science and um, graduated with a degree in plant pathology at the height of the Depression and ended up through a series of coincidences working in Mexico in the 1940s, when Mexico was desperately poor. It was poor in a way that's really hard for us to imagine now. And something like two out of three people in the country at some point didn't get enough to eat during the year. Um, The... National grain of Mexico is corn, as most people know, to make tortillas and tamales and so forth. And the national harvest of corn was going down. Hmm. The nation harvested a third less corn in 1940 than it did in 1920, even though more and more acres were planted. So the situation was really, really dire. And uh, by years and years of incredibly hard work, he developed these high yielding grains that radically transformed the situation in Mexico and in many other uh, countries. Hmm. And so with his own eyes, he saw the power of science and technology to make a huge difference. And this example is so extraordinary that people in many, many unrelated fields have taken it to heart. And that's how he's become the emblem of this mm-hmm. idea.
0: And, and you note that big foundations put their money behind him. They've sort of willing really liked this approach of invention, whereas vote, at least in some ways, and by some people was sort of branded like a tree hugger and like did not get the kind of financial support um, that Borlaug did.
1: No. uh, And part of it was because uh, he was explicitly um, critical of capitalism. I mean, he was critical of practically everything. Um, So this was just sort of folded into the mix. And a lot of the foundations were founded by people who had done very, very well in the capitalist uh, system. And so consequently, his message was unwelcome. And his message really was, we're using too much, we're consuming too much, we're placing too much uh, weight on the uh, ecosystems of the earth, and the result will be deforestation, erosion, pollution, Mm -hmm. nitrogen um, problems, you know, the the panoply of um, environmental issues that we are familiar with today. And uh, his argument was we just got to stop doing things the way we are and we have to change it into something quite different, something that's much easier on the earth. And this was then and now an unwelcome message to people who are doing very well out of the current system.
0: But wouldn't you say that the the vote approach, the kind of don't consume as much approach, was also about sort of changing our communities in a fundamental way? It wasn't just – about having an energy star on refrigerators.
1: Yes, it was about keeping a vital countryside, I think, would be a nice way of putting it. Uh, One of the things that came along with the Green Revolution was industrial agriculture, and it fit neatly into that. And essentially, it regards the land as a kind of petri dish that you pour chemicals into, you plant the seeds in, and then you get this um, huge crop of nearly identical um, plants that you harvest with giant machines. And so it fed a huge... Exodus from the countryside into the cities and you right. get this radically depopulated countryside. And this has occurred not just in the United States where you know the farm population went from the people, number of people involved in farms to something like a quarter of the nation in the 1930s to today where it's um, on the order of 2 percent. And this happened – in one way or another, all over the world, and fed into these huge populations in the uh, in the cities and the votians. Although I don't actually use that word very much in the book because it sounds too much like a Star Trek you know ca- character, <laughs> you, know, you know, Captain the Votian ambassador, so forth. So we'll say the prophets. Okay, the prophets decried this and said, "Look, you know." They're like Jefferson. They say a a countryside that is, you know, thriving and populous and uh, has these uh, farm communities. That's a good way to live. That's a way, uh, you know, foundation of democracy and, and so forth. And so in a funny way, the prophets are connected to a very, very old strain in American life. And You know, almost anybody who grows up American has some sympathy with this because it's been imbued in us from our education.
0: I should say here that you look at votes followers, um, these folks who basically saw doom if we put too much pressure on the earth, as prophets, like people who are predicting the future. Um, And you look at Borlaug's followers or you call Borlaug's followers who the folks who thought invention will help us sort of wriggle out of our sticky situations. Uh, Those people are wizards. I wonder if you think like the data is in yet on who was right or like, do we have enough evidence in yet?
1: Unfortunately, we have evidence that both are right. Um, and it depends on the kind of lenses that you look at. If you're concerned about productivity, there's no question that the wizards, that Borlaug um, is is right. We can obviously produce vastly more than was thought possible in the 1960s, but the lesson that vote drew is that we might be able to produce more, but it will be accompanied by severe ecological damage. And that mm. has also occurred. Mm. Um, for example, about, you know, a key part of the Green Revolution is fertilizer, about 40% right. of That's that right. fertilizer. There's been an enormous increase in the Amount of fertilizer that's been um, used around the world, about forty percent of that fertilizer was not absorbed by plants, and it's either gone up into the air in the high air where it interferes with the um, ozone layer, or down below where it creates nitrous oxides and pollution, or even worse into streams where it gets washed from the land. The streams go into the ocean, create fertilizer in the ocean is still fertilizer. It creates these enormous blooms of um, algae and other um, aquatic plants. They die. They fall to the um, bottom of the ocean, microorganisms eat them up, and they are in such a frenzy with this new food supply that they suck all the oxygen out of the water and they create these vast dead zones. There's one Mm. in the Gulf of Mexico, it's about 7,000 square miles. There's one in the Bay of Bengal um, that was measured last year, it's about uh, 21,000 square miles. Mm. There are these huge areas where no life can survive. And so a prophet would look at this and say, look what's happened here. Agriculture is literally killing the oceans. So... Which, which of these do you believe? Mm-hmm. Do you believe the good side? You know, yay, more food or bad side? Look at all the erosion, mm-hmm. de- um, deforestation, salinization, the nitrogen dead zones. They're, they're both accurate.
0: Charles Mann is the author of the new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Charles, thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure talking with you.
0: articles on the effects of fertilizer on the ocean that man mentioned, which is creating dead zones, that's at our website, innovationhub.org.